Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. From the Milton Metz studio at the Radio TV building in Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, along with WFIU, WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. Today we're going to talk with people who've been on the front lines of helping children in need in Indiana, including representatives of court-appointed special advocates of Monroe County, which is marking 35 years in existence this year. We also have a guest from the Children's Bureau Incorporated. If you have questions or comments for our guests, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free 1-877-285-9348. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you'll be talking with our guest, Kristen Bechet, Executive Director of CASA of Monroe County. Retired Judge, Judge Francie Hill, who retired from the bench in December, Dana December, who was the founder of CASA 35 years ago. And Rochelle Steele, Associate Vice President of the Children's Bureau Incorporated, an organization that has served children and families since 1851. So, thank you for being here with us today. Um, it's a lot to talk about. I mean, the chil- children in the state of Indiana, Monroe County, and all other counties in the state sometimes need uh, adults to help them um, get through lots of troubled times. Um, Kristen, I want to ask about, about CASA. We've had you on the show before. CASA's been around for, for 35 years, and we know that now. Um, why is CASA, CASA necessary? Why is it needed? There are many children who are in the court systems because they've been abused or neglected. And unless they have a voice, someone to advocate for their best interest, sometimes the focus can get askewed and not get more on the parents or the situation versus the kids. So the CASA's main objective is to make sure that the best interest of the child is always at the forefront of all the proceedings and all the the judgments that are made for the family and the kids. Okay, and Judge Hill, 35 years ago, you started CASA, right? So what was that all about? I mean, why, what did you, why, why did you see the need then? Well, it was really a confluence of federal and state law at the federal level, the national level, the recognition that we had way too many children in foster care for way too long a period of time and that we needed a separate voice that was independent from the Department of Child Services or from the state entity to advocate for children to monitor And I think one of the most important things for me, from my point of view as a juvenile judge, was to have this entity that was coming in bringing facts, not just saying this is what's best for the child or um, this is my perception, but here are the facts. Mom was ordered to go to this program. Dad was ordered to go to that program. They did. They didn't. Um, the child is in this situation. So that volunteer person who came in with no biases really, no not paid, um, just kind of it was sort of a give me the facts. And from a judicial point of view, that's a tremendous thing to have this written report and then the person right in the courtroom who's saying this is what's happening with the family. This is whether uh, and then leading from those facts, making recommendations about what would be best for that child, whether they need to stay in the system longer, whether we need to change the point of view, maybe not continue towards reunification if this family won't go in that direction. Mm-hmm. So we also have with us Rochelle Steele, who's uh, with the Children's Bureau Incorporated. Can you talk about what, what the Children's Bureau does, how it differs from CASA, and, and how it overlaps with CASA? Sure, absolutely. So what we do at Children's Bureau, we do a couple of different um services. I shouldn't say a couple. There's a lot of services. Um, in particular, on the um, we do intervention services, which are working with those families who have been court-ordered to um, work towards reunification. So the child might still be in the home, and that's where we would, um, on the side, we would work with CASA 
as well as give recommendations for court hearings. Um, but we also work with those families who the, have their children removed from their home. And during those cases in both scenarios, we, we go in, we roll our sleeves up, we go in and work with these parents, foster parents, um, to ensure the transition for, for this family and the children especially. That's forefront because it's traumatic for them to be removed from their home. And for us, we want to ensure that they have the necessary tools, the, ch the parents as well as the children, in order to have long-term stability once there is reunification um, occurring. If that's the road that the family is headed down, then, then we want to make sure that they're successful in that. So what kind of tools, tools are you talking about? So we go in, and we, we have the families uh, develop their own family-centered goals. And during that time, it allows them to take ownership of what they're working on. And we're working on parenting, we're working with behavioral management, employment, housing, just any type of basic need item that they might have struggled to meet and that could be the result of why their child might not necessarily be in their care or while they're involved um, in the, with the Department of Child Services. But we ensure that they know the community resources because once we're gone, then they're able to maintain and able to know exactly who do I need to contact for this, who do I need to contact for that in order to make sure their child is um, getting their needs met. Great. I'm curious, how are CASA volunteers different from a social worker? First completely of all, different? <laughs> first of all, CASA volunteers are, they're volunteers and um, they're lay people. They're just people who have compassion for kids and um, common sense and can look into a situation, gather facts, gather information, and uh, make an assessment that they don't, they don't have any agenda other than what's best for the child. They, um, they don't have any policies they have to follow. Of course, they have to follow the law, but um, they, they're just really going in there with kind of a clean slate and how they're going to view this family and what this family needs. The Department of, Social Sur uh, uh, um, Department of Child Services, um, they have mandates that they meet. They have policies they must follow. Um, they have much more stricter guidelines um, that can kind of restrict uh, the way they do business, if, if I may. Um, one size doesn't fit all, and it's hard to make sure that all the families get everything they need. Now, the social services, um, what Rochelle is in, they contract with the Department of Child Services, and so they're actually in there working with the families. Our CASAs go in and observe what's going on, gather all the facts, and then they'll say, okay, I think the child needs this, the parents need to participate in that, um, and then they make those recommendations. It's Rochelle's people who go in and do those services, actually work with the families. And so we're there as fact finders, we're there as monitors, and to make the recommendations to help the case move along. We really try a team approach with the Department of Child Services. They're the case managers of the case. They're the ones, it's their case, they're, they're running the show. Um, but we're there just kind of to, to help along and, and um, give a second opinion, um, get, have two more eyes on the family, and um, it, the team approach has been really helpful and really working. The Department of Child Services has, has been um, in the news a lot, and there's a new report out. We're not going to talk about that today, but we did call um, our producer, Benta Boutier, called uh, State Senator Travis Holdman this morning and talked with him a little bit. And he had some interesting things to say about the work that you all do, really, with uh, alongside DCS. We're going to play that now. can do to strengthen its array of services that are available to families before they reach uh, a CHINS proceeding, a child services proceeding is going to be helpful and then also to be available to DCS uh, to come alongside DCS to work with the family and to help the family out to basically DCS out of their life uh, and uh, go on to have a more normal uh, family existence. So it's it's a matter, you know, the state's working on this issue, you know, the CASA's working on this issue, the Children's Bureau, because, you know, children are our future. There's a cliche, but it's definitely true. And there are lots of, you know, there are lots of challenges that go on with young people today. Um, yeah, Kristen? 
Um, I'd like to respond to that because it brings up a, a great point. Um, the the report that you referred to earlier, one of the things that came out of it and what or why they had the report is that we had so many kids in foster care. And so um, the Department of Child Services is working really hard to prevent kids from going into foster care. So they open cases that are kind of on a lower level of severity. And they're in there giving services and not removing the kids from the home. And the idea is then the, the service providers like Rochelle go in to prevent the kids from being removed and trying to head it up before it gets so severe that they have to be. And um, that approach is it seems to be working well. Um, the, the kids um, go through such a trauma being removed that um, this is if we can reduce that trauma for them that's amazing and so th that is the shift from the report and um, it's a good one we, we did have too many kids in foster care a lot of them need to be there and some still do but having more intensive services in the home while they're still there is preventing them from being removed and I agree with you on that because one of the other services that um, we provide and every county in the state has available to families who are can be labeled at at risk or um, who aren't involved with the juvenile probation side or the Department of Child Services. It's called Community Partners for Child Safety. And again, this is a service available to anyone in, in all the counties as long as they're not involved with one of those two departments. And what our goal is, is going in and ensuring that those families are doing the preventative work so they're not in, in the system. And overall, and that is helping with, um, you know, if they're short on paying rent one month because they had an ex their car broke down and now they had to put all that extra money towards repairing the car so they had transportation to get the kids to the doctor's appointments, to childcare, to their job. We're able to assist with that, and um, it's just a wonderful service because it, you know we focus on safe sleep, making sure that the family has the right car seats if they have little children, um, ensuring they have the advocacy tools to advocate for themselves with school because sometimes school can be intimidating for families to navigate if their child has special needs, and so again, it's just a program that has it does not have an income requirement, it doesn't have an insurance requirement requirement. And if a child is in someone's home 50% of the time, they can be provided a service. And, and that's where the collaboration from all agencies within the community really comes together and, and wraps around these families. And there is a 98, 99% success rate of families not being involved in the system if they have gone through the Community Partners Program. Mm -hmm. If you have questions or comments about uh, these issues that we're talking about today, about child uh, advocacy and, and services available to children, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the discussion by tweeting us at Noon Edition. Bob, can I add something? Yes, sure. One of the things that when we're talking about child abuse and neglect that we're just kind of missing here is recognizing the opioid <clears throat> problem. So we've talked <clears throat> about services which are very prevention-oriented for people for a variety of ways in which they've neglected their children, maybe not at any direct fault of their own, mm -hmm. but it's neglect. They're not getting what they need. But when we talk about drug addiction in so many ways, that's why the CASA is really important because we're often reaching a point where a child's been out of, a ho out of the home in the system for a long period of time. And the question is, can this mother or this father rectify the, pro the problem with the drugs enough that they can provide safe supervision? And that's probably where neglect comes in. If you are using an illegal substance and you have to go into an illegal area to get it and involved in a criminal activity, um, not only are you impaired in your ability to supervise, but you've placed yourself and your family in jeopardy. So a big piece about all the children who are in the system is a result of the drug use. And that's where we're looking the CASA to draw facts. Did the family go to these services that they had to? Where are we with this addiction? What did the drug results in the test show? And that's, and then we put a common sense to it. So the, the CASA is not only delivering the facts, but saying on the basis of these facts, I think reunification is possible in two to three months, or 
I don't think this family can turn it around. So we need to look at another permanent option for this child. So it's not going to be reunification. It's, we're going to go through termination of parental rights and get to adoption or a guardianship with a relative. But I think that's an important piece um, that's a little bit different from our trying to avoid getting kids into the system mm -hmm. as opposed to why we need advocacy once kids are into that legal system. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a much greater need since the opioid epidemic? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. The number of uh, families who are in the system, almost all of them have a drug component. There might be other components that come alongside to that, but most of them have really? a drug component. Yeah, I, I know, Kristen, we've talked about this before, probably two or three years ago, that the yes. opioid uh, epidemic was really creating a need for your services and was really putting a lot of kids in the system and stressing the system. Have you seen any change, or is it, is it getting worse? Has it leveled off? You know, it's interesting you ask that because I was in the child protection team meeting this past week and law enforcement are reporting that it, they're seeing a real reduction in the calls they have to make for very specifically for heroin. Opioids um, are still out there. The, the pills are still out there and all, but there's been a real decrease in the heroin use, which is a good thing. I'm not sure what that's all about. Um, there seems to be a little bit of an uptake in um, cocaine use here. Um, again, I'm not sure why, but um, we are seeing a steadiness in the number of cases that are coming in. We went through a three-year period that we, we went from about 400 kids a year to 750 kids a year, and um, now it, it, it's stabling off a little bit. So. Mm -hmm. What that means, I'm hoping the service, what's just saying is that the people are taking part of these services and they are getting healthier. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I know, you know, in the beginning of the show, I talked about how there isn't a wait anymore. You don't have a wait list. At yes. Casa, and that's very exciting <laughs> to you. That is the most exciting thing for us <laughs> because it's the first time. Well, in 2012, we had one month without a wait list. But this time last year, we had 120 kids on our wait list. Wow. And how, now we have none. How did you accomplish that? We, our, the community responded to our call out for volunteers. We went from 100 volunteers to 150 in two-year time. Um, we the, the cases are going down a little bit. We're kind of meeting in the middle, but our CASAs are also um, upping their game, and they're taking more than one case at a time. So it, it's a huge accomplishment, and we're very proud of it. And so for it's fitting. For 35 years of doing this, we started out the first year serving 14 kids. Last year, we served 758 kids, and um, it's, it's amazing that we have zero on a wait list right now. Judge Hill, do you remember who the first CASA was? I do not. Okay. <laughs> I remember um, Susan was our first director, and then Paul Turgi, and then Kathleen Podges. I remember um, just the wow factor of being in the courtroom for the first time with those volunteers. And there was a lot of, as um, the different counties were looking at using this volunteer program, there was a lot of yaya -ya about whether could volunteers be in that legal setting? Would they understand the standards? Would they? Uh, be aware of the concepts of hearsay, and the casas were just great. They didn't have any. Pro they weren't shy. They weren't uncomfortable. They just give me the facts, ma'am. Mm -hmm. So it was a pretty big wow factor. Which I think the first um, casas were trained in '83 and '84. Yes, took right. their first case in '84. Um, so it was an exciting time to mm -hmm. see that it worked. Mm -hmm. I. So even as someone who is trained in this, I don't know how you detach from it. So how, with volunteers, I can't imagine, do that. How, do, how do you get them so that they're not just haunted by this constantly outside of volunteering? I have an amazing staff that every volunteer is um, paired up with a supervisor. And our, one of our big goals is to protect the CASA from many things, legal, legal issues and all, but mostly from their feelings and emotions and what's going to happen as they work this case. Um, I just took on, I, I started as a volunteer 25 years ago, and, but I haven't had a case of my own. I supervise cases, but I haven't had a case of my own, oh, I think in probably 12, 15 years. And I have one now. And 
it has it's really good that I did this because my eyes I lost sleep the last couple of nights um, you, it just tugs at you am I making the right decision what can be done for these kids and and it kind of reopened my eyes and what these volunteers do go through so it is something that they have to they have to work through it and we, we talk about self-care and we talk about stress relievers and and activities to do that but um, th- they're amazing people and they, they come in there, we train them well, and they, they lean on us when they need to be leaned on, but they're strong people. And, and as Judge Hill mentioned, um, they're not shy. You know, they, they are compassionate, and they're, are, they're ready to make that fight that they need to for the kids. Rochelle, is, I, I would assume the same is true with your caseworkers. I, you know, I know they're professionals, but still it would be hard to disengage when they go into families and see the issues. Oh, absolutely. I remember um, I've been doing this for over 10 years, and I remember my first case, you know, working directly with the family. Even after the case, I've been closed for a year because of guardianship. I turn on the news one morning, and, and this mother had um, the child that I had been working with them on she had murdered him because of she had some mental health issues that weren't being um, treated. And um, even after that amount of time, it's like, oh my gosh, I have a chocolate milk stain in the back of my car on my carpet from him. You know, so it's like those little things like it, it carries on. It can, it's just not, you close the case and you're no longer working this family. Those families linger for, with you for a long time. Um, I was just notified the other night that this very severe physical abuse case that I had worked on and done some therapy on um, because I had specialized in trauma work that um, they were finally adopted and they I got a photo of of them and they were those kids were just smiling and and happy and it's like I'm so happy that they have found their right path in life of um, of where they need to be for to be well taken care of and so you know, we at Children's Bureau ensure that our staff um, can go through secondary trauma training. Um, we have accessibility to the, our employees' um, per assistance um, where they can easily get access to counseling services if that is needed. We do a lot of mindfulness activities. Um, we have a great group of directors who ensure all their staff are constantly working through those relaxation, self-care techniques because it is important. If we see that you haven't been taking time off and utilizing your PTO, we're asking when are you going to take off because this work is hard. It is not easy. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking today with representatives from the court-appointed special advocates of Monroe County and the Children's Bureau Incorporated, which is headquartered in, in Indianapolis. If you have questions or comments, Give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, along with Sarah Whitmire, and we're talking today with Kristen Bechet, Executive Director of Court-Appointed Special Advocates of Monroe County, uh, Judge Francie Hill, who's retired, uh, and she retired last December at the end of the year, and she was a founder of CASA 35 years ago, and Rochelle Steele, who's an asso- the Associate Pro- Vice President of the Children's Bureau Incorporated, an organization that has served children and families since 1851. If you have questions or comments, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also tweet us 
at Noon Edition. So I want to ask you, Kristen, about how, you know, what kind of training is done to become a CASA? We um, use a curriculum that it was developed by National CASA, and it's a 30-hour training. Um, it, we do it over a three-week period. And then once they are trained, they go, um, they're, go out into the field with their first case with a mentor to help them get their feet wet. And then we require 12 hours of continuous service um, credit hours to um, educate them on different topics like maybe domestic violence or opioid abuse. Or, and so we offer training for that throughout the year as well. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk about... So let's say I, I've just become a CASA and I'm going out, uh, you know, out in the field. What might, might I encounter? I know there's a whole range of things I might encounter, but how often am I going to meet with the family? Um, how often will I meet with the child by myself? You are, as a CASA, required to meet the child every month and have a meaningful visit with them. And um, it's not like a big brother, big sister situation. You're not taking them to the ball game or to the museum or anything like that. But you usually meet them where they're, where they're living, whether it be a foster home or in their own home. Sometimes you can visit them at school or take them to the park or something. But um, you're visiting the child once a month and getting to know them. You're talking to the foster parents or the parents, finding out what the um, kids are doing and how well they are doing. Um, what a CASA will do is just try to just gather what information and talk to people. Um, they, they don't want to be threatening. They, they want to come across as being someone who cares about the kids. The parents usually aren't threatened. Um, a lot of CASAs ask if there's any risk and um, are CASAs ever in harm's way. And it, it never has happened in 35 years that a CASA has been harmed. We've had threats made, and we've taken precautions about that. But generally, it's we don't come in. We do come in when the kids have been removed already, if they're going, to, if they have been, and they've been in placement for a couple of weeks already. And so we're not there at the moment of the trauma and at, at the extreme time of, of stress that they're going through. So they've settled in a little bit. So you, um, you go in to people who are welcoming usually. Um, they, they want you to hear what they have to say. And um, it doesn't feel adversarial, especially at first. It can get that way. And, um, and that's where we just kind of make arrangements if, if we feel any threats we don't go into the homes then, or, or we meet at the DCS office or at our office. Um, and that happens sometimes when the CASA is really saying, I don't think the child can come home. I don't think reunification is going to be possible. And it also happens when you have some mentally um, ill parents. And there, we do have quite a few who are involved in cases, and we take precautions with that, too. But um, really, they're, they're guarded. CASAs are guarded as someone who is there to help the kids and be their voice. And so they, they are received quite well in most cases. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you, Rochelle, just sure. about this case that we've had here in Monroe okay. County, this severe case of neglect. And I think the stepmom and the father are being charged even with murder now. But um, the child had lived in Florida with his family, and all the media reports there say that the teachers, the the biological mother didn't have any idea that this abuse was happening. So I'm just curious what sort of signs, you, if, if there aren't physical, I guess, marks on a child, what, what can you look for in a child? Absolutely. So I like to say like a, a silent um, warning is that the child becomes really withdrawn. Um, they might become very irritable. They... Uh, they, if they're a child that is easily able to make friends and all of a sudden they're no longer really engaging in building relationships or in, in just being their normal self, if something in your stomach is, is not sitting well, like, I wonder if they're doing okay today. Are you sick? Are you? If you're starting to question things like that and you see a pattern and it's going on longer than maybe in uh, an illness that you know a cold or, or what have you I'm just throwing out some examples then that's definitely times where you kind of want to you know speak up because you know you mentioned earlier at the beginning of of the show of 
the adults are the, the child's biggest advocate, right? And so we have to be their voice. Even if you might not know that child and you're afraid that the parent might um, retaliate against you, the most important thing is something, it's better to say something and it for, not, for it to not to be true than for you not to say anything and something is happening to that child behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. I think um, a piece of that too is that every state in the nation has child abuse reporting laws. Um, the, the problem is, as Rochelle said, and maybe Florida was saying, is we didn't see anything. But the point is, everybody is obligated to make a report if they have reason. And Indiana's standard is if you have reason to believe a child is abused or neglected. And there's the rub. What is it that we're seeing? You know, some of the best reporters are teachers because they're the ones who see children consistently, can see a mood change, can see marks, can see a variety of different things, but everybody's obligated to do it. So it is pretty frightening when you see a case like this. Um, Why didn't somebody recognize it sooner? Why didn't somebody at the hotel or the motel where they were staying see something? But it's not not easy. No, it's definitely not easy. Mm -hmm. Um, Judge Hill, you talked earlier about this, but I wanted you to talk a little bit more about the importance to the court system and to to the people who are on the bench. of having folks like uh, the caseworkers that are working um, with Rochelle's group or with the CASAs that are working in Monroe County? It's a, it's a great question. And, and first, I'd like to say for Monroe County, um, Judge Galvin and Judge Harvey are the two current juvenile judges, and they are fantastic. They're well-versed on the law. They care. They know the system. And probably what's important, why you need the advocate, is that the system has a process. So the children come in, and as Kristen said, usually the cause is not involved at that point. Then there is a judgment that the child is a child in need of services. And this is really very legalistic in that there has to be proof um, by a preponderance of the evidence. But then we come to a monitoring stage, and that is at six months from removal, there has to be a hearing to say, is the family working towards reunification? And that's where we get the CASA in there. And we're usually still looking at reunification at that point. But at 12 months, after the child's been out of the home for a year, then we're looking at permanency and not necessarily assuming it will be reunification. What This child is entitled to have a permanent home. And if these parents can't get there for whatever reason, then we have to look at something else. So... Um, what the judge is doing is looking at the CASA and hearing the CASA report along with the Department of Child Services and the service providers um, to say at the six months, are we on reunification? And the judge is sometimes asking additional questions but reading those different documents and lots of times saying, I, I don't see, is there some reason why we're not getting these drug test results in? Um, And the judge kind of has a whole list. In this particular family, the problem is mom's untreated mental health, um, dad's drug addiction, et cetera. And you're looking at those three or four points at each one of these hearings. And each one of these hearings, the CASA, the service provider, the Department of Child Services is feeding you facts. And if you don't have those facts, you're the least informed person in the room. And that's the worst for the judge. So how long does this process go on? So after somebody... The first step you said gets, what did you call it? Removed from the home, which is called detention. Um, A child can be removed from the home without a court order. The Department of Child Services in an emergency can take the child out. And that has um, time frames in it. Um, You have to have a hearing within 48 hours of the removal of the child. Then you go into a judgment phase or a petition. A petition is filed. And the court has to determine, based upon the presentation of evidence by preponderance of the evidence, is that child a child in need of services? And that's what Indiana's abuse and neglect phrase is, chins. And we have about 12 different categories of chins. The biggest ones are neglect, physical abuse, and sexual abuse, and children who are born with an illegal substance in their system. Mm -hmm. So how long, I mean, realistically, could a child be in this sort of limbo? I mean, I know you said the goal was every child deserves a permanent home. So the goal, just as you said, is really 12 months after the removal, not that first hearing, because it may be a delay in there. The goal is to be on a permanency track and near the ability to return that child home at 12 months. And if at 12 months you're not in that direction, then you have to look at another permanency option. So there's four or five different permanency options. And I think 
one of the things that the federal law did and the state law said was kids are in care too long and they are entitled to get to permanency and permanency might not be in their own home. If you're going to go the route and the court says and the DCS um, makes um, the CASA recommends, then other options are to go to a guardianship with a relative. Um, to um, have termination of parental rights so that child is free for adoption. Those are alternatives to reunification. People don't really like to talk about that, but that's where the voice of the child comes important. That child is not neutral to staying out of the home. Mm -hmm. Um, They're entitled to get to permanency. If it's not going to be in their own home, what's the other option? You know what's interesting is the um, opioid epidemic has changed this a little bit. it used to be where the CASAs, before the law changed at the 12 months, we really have to look at permanency, um, the kids would linger in foster care four or five years, a really long time. And so when CASAs first came to being, it was like we were trying to get the cases, let's move things along faster and get permanency for these kids, and we are kind of pushing things along really hard. Now it seems like we're almost doing the opposite because they want to close the cases so quickly. And with the addiction issues, it's a proven fact that it takes at least two years to get really sober and clean. And that's contradictive to how fast we need to get, decide what to do with the kids. And so a lot of times, and that's if a parent engages in services immediately, they go through this whole series of emotions, whether it be anger and then grief and mourning that their kids are in foster care. And sometimes it takes six months or more for them to really engage and really kickstart what needs to happen. And so we could be 18 months down the road and they've really done pretty well, but only for maybe six months. And it's like, is this going to hold? And so it's hard. It's hard to get the two timelines together. But I am wanting to know, let people know that uh, as far as our statistics, 75% of the kids that we advocate for, they go home. So the majority do go home to stronger, healthier, safer families. How do you get past that obstacle with opioid use then? The cases are going a little bit longer, but um, sometimes you just have to make that hard decision. Is it really realistic? Because, um, um, oh, when you backslide, I can't, the term's not coming Relapse. Relapse, thank you. When, uh, relapse is normal and it's expected. And so it's like we can be doing really well for like three or four months and all of a sudden there's this relapse. Well, does the parent admit, I relapsed, oh my gosh, I need more help? Great. Or if they deny it and hide it and maybe they'll get help a little bit later again. But it's like it, it's so fluid on what's going on. But it, it's hard. It's, they, they're hard decisions to make. How long does CASA stay working with them? Until permanency is found. So they're either back reunified completely with the parent or they're adopted or guardianship has been granted. Although but, one interesting thing is that uh, I just went to the CASA luncheon and the <coughs> terrific um, young CASA who was up speaking said her the case had closed and she'd moved to Indianapolis and she got a phone call saying, you know, the case is reopened. Mom's relapsed. Um, we've got some serious problems. The children are out of the home. Would you take the case back? And she said, in a minute. So we have... We have unbelievable CASAs, and that gives a a tremendous amount of continuity to this family because the DCS case manager may be new, that old case manager may have moved on, and this is the CASA. This is the person who knows mom or dad's story, and that's really important when you're trying to figure out in that long run, will there be reunification? Mm -hmm. How old are the kids that CASAs are working with? Anywhere from newborn to um, technically 18 years old, there is a, a program, collaborative care, that they can go beyond. I think now up to 22, 23? Yeah, 22. 22. And so if, that, if the teen decides to stay in the system and, and take advantage of the services, then they can. And then the teen would decide if a CASA needs to come along further. It's pretty much those 0 to 18. I want to give our numbers again. I want to follow up with uh, Rochelle about this. So 812-855-0811 and toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also tweet us at Noon Edition. We'd like to hear from you. We have about 
10 or 12 minutes ago on the program. So if you have a question or a comment about this topic, please give us a call. Um, I was looking at your website this morning, and one of the – it talks about pre- prevent, intervene, protect, and support. And in the support area, it talks about how, how you mentor older youth that are transitioning from foster care to independent living. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So we have a program called Older Youth Services. It's involved with the um, – the collaborative care side of things. So when you have a youth who is aging out of the foster care system, there are supports. So what that looks like is is that they're going to be helping them um, either get enrolled into secondary education or technical school um, or get them um, help getting an, an employment to where they can start learning those independent living skills of managing their money, budgeting, if the individual meets certain criteria and requirements, they will be placed in their own apartment. And these services, it's just like a case manager going into the home working with families on a day-to-day basis. They are assigned a case manager um, through the older, whoever the agency is that has the older youth services contract to the state. They will be assigned a collaborative care case manager as well as a case manager, uh, a second case manager and we go in and we work with them one-on-one. We teach them how to grocery shop, teach them nutritional food, anything that they probably have never been exposed to before, um, we're gonna teach them. A lot of them feel hopeless because guess what? I've aged out of the foster care system. Nobody wanted me. Nobody wanted to adopt me. And so we face a lot of mental health, depression, anxiety with these this age group because they do feel abandoned on multiple occasions from their own biological parents. Could have been a relative that was unsuccessful in keeping them. And now they are where they're at. And so there are so many that get on that right path and who are successful. It's, it's outstanding. And you'll see them a lot of times we just had a young lady come in and she's working in an accounting department. She's just graduated um, through the WGU, the, the state's college, and she just graduated and has a full-time job. She's able to maintain on her own. She navigates the, the public transport, and she loves coming back and talking to other kids, saying there is hope. There's more to what you've come. You can break that cycle. So it's really exciting to see these kids grow. Mm-hmm. I think that is one of the best programs that Department of Child Services started doing and bring in these service providers. Because I, I don't know what kids you have, but when my kids were 18, no way were they ready to go out and tackle the world on their own. And the, luckily for my kids, they had parents who were able to give them that support. But a lot of these kids, they age out and they're given a garbage bag and saying, okay, good luck. And it's like, you know, what, what do you expect out of them? You know, we're going to see them again somewhere, somehow. So this program is amazing. It gives them the support that they need and the guidance. And the ones who participate in it are usually so successful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, I'm really glad that Indiana has it. I really am. Good. And it's not really talked about very often either. Right. It's, it's really one of those unknown services that doesn't really get put out there, which, it, like you said, it absolutely should. Except on Noon Edition. Right. <laughs> That's right. You heard it here first. That's right. <laughs> Can you can you talk about just like long term effects? Uh, like, obviously we know it's so important to get this right and reunify or reunify them or get them in some other living situation, but just the long term effects this whole situation can have on a child. Absolutely. So if these children are always going to love their parents, right? No matter what has happened or if they've been able to be reunified, maybe get reinvolved and taken out of the home again. Um, and or maybe just aging out of the foster care system, but they, you know, they, they feel abandoned. Um, they have a higher percentage of getting involved with substance abuses. They have a higher percentage of being involved in a domestic violence situation, not developing healthy relationships with others because they've never, they have feelings of never feeling loved. So they're going to go and seek it in ways that they think is appropriate. Um, as well as to numb those feelings of their anxiety or depression um, that they're constantly having to battle. Um, these kids that age out of, of the foster care system, you know, not it's not all rainbows and butterflies for them. You have some that aren't successful, that they still struggle um, because they have a, just, they're just very high needs in regards to their mental health 
and and their skills maybe maybe their IQ is not as high as, as some that that are successful but um, with them we really focus on building informal supports whether that be through faith-based um, whether that be connecting them with other groups of kids that have the same struggles as them and as long as we can set them in the right direction and just be a support that they've never had, then they have a great chance of, of, of having success. And so if we can continue to address the, the things that they might have witnessed through trauma, and, and again, a lot of these kids go through multiple traumas. It's not just being removed from your parents. Um, it's a lot of those other factors, as, as Judge has said prior, but... Um, those are those last with you forever. We can work through those, and we can connect them to counseling services, but they'll never go away. Um, but we can lessen that impact and, and, and help them be successful. I'm curious, Judge Hill, um, I think, Kristen, you mentioned that 75% get reunited. So is there any sort of follow-up then with these families? Well, at, so once you close the Chins case, then it, it closes the, the uh, responsibility of the court. But we've both, all of us talked today about how you can have post-court services and the collaborative care really takes you out of the formal court process. The sad thing is so many kids won't accept the services. They have been in the system and they just want out of the system. And it's a, and, and there are now some changes in which if you, um, if the case closed and you were in the system before you were 18, and even though you choose not to get the services immediately, you can get them yes. now. You can yes. still get collaborative care services. Uh, I think, Sarah, I've, I've, uh, that, that train has gone down the track, and I can't really remember what the uh, initial question was. No, no, I just didn't know <laughs> if, um, <laughs> if a child does go back, with, if they're reunified right. with their right. family. Do you, do you even check in with the family to make sure things are, are we still okay? Do, 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 do the CASAs do that? Or it's kind just of depends gonna... on whether they're getting preservation, some kind of ongoing services. Right. Right. As Judge Hill said, once a case closes, it closes. It's closed. But if a child's mm -hmm. been out of foster care and when we reunify with the family, the case doesn't close immediately then. So for at least uh, three months to sometimes as much as six months, we're still working with the families with the kids in the home. So it's not like kids go home, okay, good luck, we're done. Um, there is follow-up in that respect. And usually at the last hearing where we're closing things, there is um, a statement. Mom is going to go on with these mental health programs. Dad is going to do this. You mentioned, we mentioned chins before. Is that Oh, sounds like a telephone. <laughs> <laughs> Judge, you've mentioned CHINS several times. Can you define what that is? It's Children in Need of Services, and uh -huh. it's Indiana's Neglect and Abuse, and there are about 12 categories. Okay. Um, and that's really at that proof hearing or the judgment hearing. It is, is the child a child in need of services? And I'll give you just an example of the neglect category. It is failure to provide the basic um, essentials of food, clothing, shelter, education, and supervision that seriously endangers the child. Okay. Um, and it's those difficult phrases like seriously endangered. Um, is mother's use of marijuana seriously endangering? Is mother's use of cocaine? Is mother's mental health issue that's untreated seriously endangering? Okay. But that's one of the categories. That's neglect. Okay. Well, so I want to say uh, congratulations to Kristen and to Judge Hill about 35 years of CASA. Thank you. We're proud of it. And, and I want to ask, you know, a lot of people who are listening might say, wow, that sounds like I don't know if I can do that. What, what are the most important um, things for people to I – mean, if you're going to be a successful CASA, what are the most important traits? Um, I think the biggest thing that I say to people, and it's service uh, providers uh, or CASA, it is – you're there not to carry the responsibility of this decision, but to give the facts to the judge. And so hard as it is, you're going to have that hearing, give the facts out, and then you're going to sleep at night because you're not the one making the ultimate decision. Um, and I just say, think of yourself as not, not a judgmental person, but as I'm giving you the facts. Mm -hmm. And that's what I say is, is the way that you get over the hump. We need you. 
We need these CASAs and we need these volunteers. Now, it's true. It's not for everybody. So we also need people on the board of directors and people to fund the program. So not given a pitch, but right. <laughs> I'll take the pitch. Just time. saying. <laughs> right. Um, we also want to make sure that the people who are thinking about volunteering know that they get some strong good support. They're not out there in the abyss of child welfare trying to work the system themselves. And them, they, I, my staff will support them, give them um, guidance, give them resources, and um, nurture them kind of along the way. So it, it's, not as, it's not as scary as it could seem. Um, you, you're, you're protected in many ways. Mm-hmm. And what about your caseworker? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what I always like to say is, um, in addition like to CASAs being really important, we need foster homes too, right? Oh, yes. Um, and so you don't have to be a superhero to be a foster parent. But you are a superhero if you're a foster <laughs> you do, But you do superhero things, that's for sure. And so it's just ordinary people that are doing extraordinary things um, to open their hearts and homes to, to children that um, are strangers to them as well as they're strangers to other children. And, and the things that um, they will face with with bringing with opening their home up to to the children that do have those needs. So um, for us, we um, really just want those people who are willing just to open their arms and heart and to um, provide a safe place for for children and, and while their parents work on themselves to do, to get better so that they can return to those homes in, in many cases. And um, again, they don't have. No one has to be a superhero to do that, or to be a casa, and um, and to to volunteer in a way um, with casa. I, I I don't have experience in, in that, but you know, I worked. I've worked with a lot of casa workers, and it, it is a tough job, but it's also a, a rewarding job. And um, I don't know if I would call it a job. Uh, I don't know if that's the right term. It's a job. <laughs> um, but they they are a big advocate, and we as a provider rely on the CASA to us support because we do a lot of collaboration with them, and ensuring that you know, hey, I'm seeing this. Are you seeing this? Um, and because we all want to be on the same page, because we're having to go to court and to make those recommendations that are hard. There's times where we're taking those parents to court because they don't have transportation, and we're going to have to walk into court and say the opposite of what they think we're going to say you know they think i'm doing great we're doing we're on track i've you know i've done this for for one month you know i'm fine i should get my kids back and we're going in saying you know they, they are making progress however there's still x y and z that needs to, to happen in order for there to be a successful long-term result to this family so um yeah it's it's tough, it's tough. all right i want to thank our guests today uh, Kristen Bechet. Uh, Judge Francie Hill and uh, Rochelle Steele, and congratulations on 35 years of CASA, and congratulations on however many years that is with the Children's Bureau. Oh, I think it's like 168, right? If I have math right in my head. Amazing, (laughs) right? Before child abuse laws were there. That's right. We're the Children's Orphans Home, so. For for Sarah Whitmire and producer uh, Benta Boutier and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at Smithville.com. And from The Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.